Matthew 25. We continue in our study of the parables of Jesus. And in the past two Sundays, we've looked at those parables known as the parable of the talents, which is found here in chapter 25, as well as the parable of the sheep and the goats. Today we will look at the parable that comes before these two, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. They are known as the parables of the wise and foolish virgins, the talents and the sheep and the goats. And I hope that you've seen that oftentimes we, the, they're called thus because our focus is misplaced. They should, in fact, be focusing on, in this first parable, the bridegroom, in the second, the master, and in the third, the son of man. Um, but oftentimes that's not what happens. You may wonder why we did the second parable first and then the third, and now we're coming back to the first one. Um, there is, I think, a method to my madness, if you wish. This is the third Sunday of Advent, and this parable seems appropriate in this context. So I said, we have looked at the parable of the talents, the sheep, and the goats. Today, the virgins, the ten virgins, the wise and the foolish. In the parable of the talents, it focuses on the return of the master and the giving of account. The parable of the sheep and the goats speaks of judgment. It does mention the return of the Son of Man. But here in the first of these three parables, we find the focus on the coming of the bridegroom. And just to review briefly of of what we have seen, in the parable of the talents, there are two important aspects to these parables. First is that no instructions were given to the servants. The master simply gives his property over to them and then he leaves. He does not give them any instructions. So the question is, how are they to know what to do? Well, the second point is that the actions of the servants depended upon their view of the master. And we see this not so much in the first two, but it really comes through in the third one. And so we project backwards. He thought that the master was a bad person, that he was a person who took what didn't belong to him. And because that's what he thought of the master, he buried the talent in the ground and did nothing with it. The other two, on the other hand, doubled what they had been given, showing and I think reflecting what they view of the way they viewed the master. The key to the parable of the talents is the character of the master, which resulted in their actions. And the reward, the first two, is to share in the master's happiness, which is truly a reward if you think he's a nice person. If you don't think he's a very nice person, then the idea that you would spend more time with this person certainly doesn't sound like a reward. And then the parable we looked at last week in the sheep and the goats. And what we found is that people, there are people that are described in this parable who do not serve Christ consciously. The righteous, as they're called in this story, are not conscious of Jesus. They're not saying, oh, I'm doing this, I'm going to serve Jesus. As I give water to this person, I'm giving it to Jesus. As I give food to them, if I clothe them, all these different things. Um... They simply do what is right because they love their neighbor. And then the second point, which I think is in many ways the strongest point of this parable, and that is that Jesus identifies with human beings. The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And here we learn the identity of the God that we worship who identifies with people in their weakness, in their hunger, in their thirst, in their need of shelter, 
in their confinement, whether in illness or in prison. This, I think, is what Jesus is trying to show us. As I've emphasized throughout this series, the parables of Jesus are theocentric. And the purpose of these parables is to change our behavior. It is, in fact, to make us disciples of Jesus Christ. But how do you do that? Do you give us a list of do's and don'ts? I think we would much prefer that because that's, well, we just like to be told what is right and what is wrong. Or do you, in fact, tell us who God is, what he is like, what it is like when he rules, what it is that he seeks to do in the world? I'm convinced that what Jesus did when he was on earth did not, was not to give us a list of rules of do's and don'ts, but in fact in his living and in his teaching to demonstrate who God is, what God is like, and what it looks like when God is ruling. So, if the parables in fact are theocentric, we should consider that the names that are given to the parables here in Matthew 25 are somewhat inappropriate to talk about the talents when it in fact the focus is on the master or of the sheep and the goats when it in fact it is the son of man who is giving judgment and here the ten virgins rather than the bridegroom. I use the titles though because they are familiar. Um, so just so you know. One more thing before I go on. In Matthew 13 we have much like Matthew 25 a series of parables about the kingdom of heaven. But there's something quite different. In Matthew 13, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like, present tense. Whereas here we find in Matthew 25, the focus is future. If you look at the first verse, at that time the kingdom of heaven will be like. And it, spoke, it's, it focuses on something that is yet to come. In Matthew 13, we are told how the kingdom of God enters our lives now and the difference that it should make, the power of the word in our lives. Um, here in Matthew 25, the orientation is future. And what we find are a series of warnings regarding our behavior, um, and the fact is that there is coming judgment. Listen and follow along, uh, if you would, as I read the first 13 verses here in Matthew 25. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, others, the others came, also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. This is, at least to me, a familiar parable. And yet I was surprised as I began to make preparations for the sermon, how disliked it is by so many people. I really found that quite surprising. 
Um, and why don't people like this parable? Well, there are different reasons. Uh, as one writer put it, clearly some scholars do not care for this parable, and often it is omitted or treated briefly. Why don't they like it? Well, some people think Jesus actually didn't speak this parable, that this is something that comes from the church, because it deals with those who are in and those who are out. And they see Jesus as being inclusive. And so, you know, when Jesus allows sinners to come in, how dare we have a parable about those who are excluded, those who are not allowed to come in? Um, I think that the person who says this is really mistaken because Jesus oftentimes did distinguish between those who were in and those who were out. In Matthew 11, after the Sermon on the Mount, we have the story of the centurion who comes to Jesus and asks him to heal his servant. And, and he tells Jesus, you don't have to go to my house. Just speak the word and he will be healed. And Jesus says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus didn't say, you know, sort of ollie ollie income free that everyone gets to come in. There was, in fact, a distinction made between those who were in and those who were out. Um, one author doesn't like this parable because he thinks Matthew created it, that Matthew created this parable to explain why Jesus had not yet returned. Another argues that he's not sure where this parable comes from, but he thinks we should drop it because it is so harsh that the five were not allowed to come in uh, after they went to get oil. The harshness is seen in part that the bridegroom is ungracious, it's quite remarkable that he says, I don't know who you are. And that the, the five virgins, the wise ones, did not share with those who had need. Interestingly enough, it is feminist scholars who really, really dislike this parable. They believe it perpetuates patriarchal power. The bridegroom acts in terms of justice and not mercy. The bridegroom, they say, acts contrary to what Jesus taught. And so you shouldn't even want it to go to this wedding. But what an obnoxious bridegroom. You wouldn't even want to go to this wedding because he's acting contrary to what Jesus taught. The wise virgins are negative because they did not show solidarity with their sisters in sharing the oil. It's a story of violence and oppression. The virgins are presenting themselves in a competitive situation in a wedding, hoping to catch a man. I'm not sure where they got that, but anyway. And one scholar, one feminist scholar, argues that the door, in fact, is not closed because the foolish can reply, you may not know us, but we know you, and so you better let us in. And I must tell you, I was really taken back by these criticisms and this opposition, the rejection. What is this parable about, and what does it say? Well, first of all, let's look at the context. We must confess that one of the frustrations in studying this parable is that we know so little about weddings in the ancient world. The information we have is sparse. And in fact, the practices may have differed from town to town, maybe from family to family or clan to clan. This is what we think we know. First of all, you have the betrothal, what we would call the engagement. And it takes place in the house of the bride's father. There is, uh, it's a festive occasion. There are blessings that are pronounced. Candles are lit. There is celebration. But between the engagement or the betrothal and the, med the marriage, the wedding, 
the bride stays at her father's house. When the wedding day comes, the bride gets dressed, she is suitably adorned and perfumed, and then there is a festive procession that goes from the groom's house, or his parents' house, if they're going to live with his parents, and he goes in this procession to his bride's father's house, he collects her, if you wish, and then there is a procession going back, and once they get to the house where the wedding will take place, there will be a feast, um, and it may in fact last for several days. And then everyone goes home, and they are married. In this parable, the women who accompany the bride um, are what we would, I think, in our culture, would be the equivalent of bridesmaids. They are waiting to accompany the bride as she goes from her father's house to the house of her husband-to-be. The ten are waiting because they know that this is the day of the wedding and they are waiting for the groom to show up and collect his bride and they will go with him and they will be the wedding feast at his house. But in this story, um, well, first of all, we assume that it takes place at night because they have lamps. And we don't know if that's typical. We simply know that they have lamps, they're waiting for the bridegroom to come and then they will accompany him and his bride. The bridegroom, however, is really late. This is normally something we expect in our culture from the bride, not from the groom. But since he is the one who is coming to collect her, all eyes are on him. He's the one who sets the time. Finally, he shows up and it's midnight. It's safe to say that this was not planned, that they didn't think the wedding would begin at midnight. They've, been, they've had their lamps and the lamps have been burning. They've probably turned the wicks down, but they've still been burning. And now when he shows up, the five who did not bring extra oil realize that they don't have enough. So they ask the others who have extra to share with them. They do not. Instead, they tell them that they should go to merchants and buy from merchants. It's unlikely anyone would be open at midnight, but it's a parable. It's not a true-to-life story necessarily. And so they go off to buy oil, and while they're doing that, the bride and the bridegroom go to his house and the door is closed and the wedding feast begins. When they get there, they try to get in and he says, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. How are we to understand this parable? Well, as we saw when we began this series on parables, that parables are oftentimes misunderstood because people try to make a one-to-one equivalent and they they differ on what those things are, are about. And so you may remember, I'll just remind you, that St. Augustine in the parable of the Good Samaritan said that the man who fell among thieves who was ambushed was Adam. And that Jerusalem is the heavenly city. He went from Jerusalem down to Jericho. That is the moon, which is quite remarkable. Uh, the robbers were the devil and his angels who stripped the man of his immortality. They beat him by persuading him to sin. The priest and the Levite are the priesthood of the Old Testament. The Samaritan is Christ. The binding of his wounds is the restraint of sin. The oil and the wine are comfort of hope and the encouragement to work. The donkey is the incarnation. Uh, the inn is the church. The next day is the resurrection of Jesus. The innkeeper is the apostle Paul. It just goes on and on and on. And if, in fact, this is how you view parables then they can mean just about anything you want them to mean. Um, 
I will say, as I said back then, St. Augustine took scripture seriously. Um, but he failed, as so many do, to take the historical context um, as seriously as they should have. And so they don't ask, what does this mean when it was spoken to those people? And what was the cultural context within which it was spoken? We must be careful when we look at this parable. And I've, I've several times found myself sort of veering off to one side or the other. That we're not trying to distract, that we're not distracted trying to figure out what are the correspondence? What does the oil equal? What are the lamps equal? Um, who are the five wise and who are the five foolish? I think it is safe to say that the virgins are not the bride. Okay, I think that's fairly clear. And so this is not a parable about the church per se. Sleep does not suggest a lack of vigilance, that they all fell asleep, so they were all slackers, but apparently the five were a little, you know, a little wiser than the others. No. Sleep and waking up does not refer to death and the resurrection. Oil does not refer to the Holy Spirit. So how are we to understand this parable? What is the key? Who is the key to this parable? I would suggest to you that it is not the ten virgins, not the oil, not the bride, who interestingly enough is never mentioned. I don't know if you caught that. She's never mentioned. I think the key is the bridegroom. He is the focal point of this parable. In the Old Testament, God is compared to a bridegroom in relation to Israel. In Hosea 2, in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. In Isaiah 54, for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. In the Gospels, we find Jesus referring to himself indirectly as the bridegroom. We find this mentioned um, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Then the, John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your, your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guest of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. If the parables are theocentric, then the main character in each parable, at least in chapter 25, points to God. Thus the bridegroom in this parable, the master in the second parable, and the son of man in the third parable all point to God. Specifically, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have now a story, we have a parable about Jesus. He is the key figure, but there is another key component, and that is the delay. In fact, if there is no delay, then this parable really doesn't make any sense. It is the delay that sets all these things in motion. That's why the five foolish run out of oil, because there is a delay. And then they run to go buy oil. When they come back, they're not allowed to come in. It all hinges on the delay. It is a delay that demonstrates the wisdom and the foolishness of these women. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, delay is, in fact, a theme. But there is not to be any anxiety because there is a delay. We shouldn't say, well, wait a minute, it's almost midnight and the bridegroom isn't here yet. Maybe something is wrong. Um, the delay is not to be a cause for anxiety. Rather, what we find in Matthew's gospel, time and time again, 
is that no one knows when the Lord Jesus will return. No one knows. And we should be prepared. And I would argue that these two themes are found in this parable as well. We see this in the teaching of Jesus. He declared that he himself did not know the time of his return. He also anticipated that there would be some interval. He didn't know when he would return, but he anticipated that there would be some period of time in between. And so he encouraged his disciples during that time to be vigilant and not to let other people deceive them into saying that, oh, we are the, we are the uh, returned Christ. We are the Lord Jesus who has come back. And then we find time and time again, Jesus warns his disciples to be prepared. And so if you look at the last verse of our text today in verse number 13, therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. As with most parables, there are questions that are not answered. And as they are not dealt with, I, I find myself speculating, which in fact can be dangerous. The first question that comes up is, why didn't the foolish virgins bring extra oil? And I, I think this is a reasonable question. Why did five women bring oil and five did not? Um, I think the answer is, is fairly simple and direct. They were convinced that they knew what was going to happen and when it was going to happen. They had been to weddings before. They know how this works. The bride is home. She's getting dressed, perfumed, everything. And the groom is going to come and he's going to collect her. They know how that works. They've been to weddings before. And every wedding they've been to thus far, the groom is somewhat anxious to, to get there and get his bride. So he's not going to dilly-dally. He's, there's not going to be a delay. They, they assume we know how this works. And therefore, we've calculated we, in fact, have enough oil. We don't need extra because we know how this works. The second question that comes up, and this usually comes up when people don't like this parable, and that is why, why didn't they share? Should the wise virgins have shared with the foolish ones? As I mentioned uh, earlier, there are those who object to this parable because it seems, it seems to teach that you should not share. And... If you know anything about the teaching of Jesus, he seemed very much into the idea that we should share with those who are in need. In fact, the last parable is about the sheep and the goats and giving people water to drink and food to eat and all these different things. And it, it just stands to reason that these women should have shared. Um, I mentioned earlier that the five are seen as not showing solidarity by sharing with their sisters. Two things should be noted. First of all, had they shared the oil that they had, there's a good chance that all of their lamps would have gone out. And the procession, the celebration, could not have proceeded in the dark. But that's speculation on my part. I think the second thing is more important, and that is we fail to take into account how parables work. Parables in reality are not connected with equal signs. That Here's a parable, here's reality, and that you can do a one-for-one -one correspondence. Parables are not pictures of direct or direct pictures of reality. They do not claim to portray life as it should be. They only partially map the realities they seek to reveal. This parable is not about ethics. Okay, 
It is about wisdom and foolishness. And with, in, in regard to what? With regard to being prepared. The five wise virgins were prepared and the five foolish ones were not. So what makes a person wise or foolish? If you read the Gospel of Matthew, you find that intellectual categories are used to describe moral states. So normally we would think that someone who is a wise person is, has got a strong intellect. But when you read Matthew, he would say that a person who is wise is morally astute. That this is someone who is doing what he or she should do. And someone who is foolish is not simply, you know, stupid. This is someone who is not doing what is morally correct. Let me read to you from the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. What we find in this parable is that the women who are called foolish by Jesus in the parable were in fact conventionally wise. Convention says we know how this works. The guy comes down, he gets the girl, they go back to the house for the feast. So we've got our lamps, we've got this covered. We know how this works. We know what's going to happen. And in fact, they did not. And I would say it is the wise virgins who say, you know, I've been to weddings before, but I don't know how things will happen in this wedding. I need to be prepared in case, in fact, there is a delay. The last question that comes up is, should the bridegroom have allowed the latecomers to come in? This, I think, um, it's another aspect of self-assuredness that, yeah, I'm going to go and buy oil. And when I get there, he will let me in. In the same way that they thought, we know how this works. We don't need extra oil. When they had to get extra oil, like, we know how this works. We're the bridesmaids. I mean, we're, we're the friends of the bride. There's no way he won't let us in. And so they go and bang on the door. And in fact, he does not let them in. They think, well, we may be a little bit late. The party gets started without us, but we'll be there and they'll let us in. It is such thinking that has caused people to question this parable and to see the bridegroom as being rather cruel and heartless and not letting them in. To make it worse, he tells them, I don't know you. One could imagine that this, well, this just doesn't seem possible. If, in fact, they are the bridesmaids accompanying his bride, he probably knows who they are very well. And yet, he will not let them in. Some would say how rude this is of him, particularly on this happy day. But this is a parable, and it's trying to make a point or two. 
That is that the Lord Jesus will return in a time that we do not know. And the Lord is not bound to our sense of privilege or right, that somehow he must let us in. No, he is the Lord God Almighty. And he alone determines what is right. The ethnic group that I grew up among, the Ilocano speakers, um, one of the things that they, they take or used to, took great delight in is debating. They love to just debate all day. And when it would come to the issue of the final judgment and, you know, if, if in fact you have not given your life to Christ, you will not be allowed in. On more than one occasion, I've heard people say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to debate with God and I'm going to win and he'll let me in. I don't think we would be so brash, but I think people have a sense that, well, of course he's going to let me in. I've been a good person. I've gone to church. I've done what I'm supposed to do. It's the five foolish virgins. We're the bridesmaids. Of course he's going to let us in. And he does not. I don't know if you remember the parable also in Matthew of the great wedding feast in which a king prepared a great wedding banquet for his son. His son's getting married. And the invited guests reject the invitation. You know, it's time for the... And the servant goes out to get them and they're like, no, I'm too busy. I can't make it. So the king says, go out into the street corners and bring everyone in. It sounds like a wonderful story of grace. But then as the king is making the rounds during the banquet, he notices that there's someone who is not appropriately dressed. And he asks this man, how did you get into this wedding without wedding clothes? And the man is speechless. The king has the man thrown out. Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, on the face of it, this hardly seems fair. It seemed like the king did an ollie-ollie income-free, you know, since my special guests who were invited didn't want to come, everybody else can come, and then someone shows up and is like, well, you're not appropriately dressed, you need to tie him up and throw him out. But it is the king who has spoken. It is his wedding feast for his son. He has the prerogative. And in this parable, it is the bridegroom who has closed the door. Again, the key to all these parables is that they are theocentric. The determining factor in all parables, and in this one as well, is the character of God. And what we see is that one day the Lord Jesus will return. That we know. When he will return, we do not know. And so we are to be prepared in the meantime. So I said there are three parables in this chapter. The parable of the virgins, the talents, the sheep, and the goats. The first one focuses on the coming. There it is of the bridegroom. The second one on the coming and judgment. And the third one on the judgment. The focus in this parable is that there is a delay. And the delay is significant. It's After all, it's midnight when he finally shows up. It's unfortunate, but... Well, it's fortunate and unfortunate that our Bibles are divided up into chapters. Because, in fact, right before this parable, at the end of chapter 24, is another parable. And there are about two servants where the master goes away. And the master returns rather quickly. They were not expecting him. Here, the next parable is of a delay that is 
one might even say inappropriate. I mean, who's ever heard of having a wedding start at midnight? But the significant, the delay is in fact significant. One writer put it this way, distant expectation makes us secular. Near expectation can make us rightly alert. We're alert because it's near. Or it can make us careless as it does here in this parable. We are not to try to sit down and figure out when the Lord Jesus will return. We will probably wrong, be wrong if we do that. Everyone's been wrong thus far. It's better for us not to calculate at all. Rather, what we should do is be prepared. Again, parables are very thin. There's so many things that are not told us. Just wonder of the conversations between these ten women. If they're like, well, I wonder what time he's going to show up. Um, you know, all these, perhaps, debates. But they fell asleep. But five were prepared. The Lord Jesus will return. Of that there can be no doubt. When it will be, I have no idea. I started reading a book this week in which the man, uh, Zephestrif, uh, the essays are to honor this particular man, and he believes that the Lord Jesus will not return for tens of thousands of years. He believes that the church is just now in its infancy. We've got a long way to grow. Um, I don't know. But it doesn't matter if it's today, tomorrow, or 10,000 years from now. We are to be prepared. And that's why Jesus tells this parable. We are to be prepared. Let's pray together. Father, for some of us, we've grown up in a church that's almost made an industry of talking about the second coming. And I think in in many ways, inappropriate things have been said. Calculations have been made. The reality is that we are to be prepared. Like the servants to whom money is given, property is given, they don't know when the master will return. So these women do not know when the bridegroom will show up. They are to be prepared. I thank you that you have not told us when the Lord Jesus is returning. Because I suspect if you did, it would change our behavior completely. And that many of us would wait to the last minute to cram before that return. But in fact, we are called to be your people, your disciples. Your kingdom is here now. We are to show that you are king of our lives. And not just when we think, oh, the second coming is near, but every day of our lives. I thank you for these parables. May we take them to heart. But above all, may we see what they teach us about you. And in our coming to know you better, may it change our behavior. May we act like your sons and daughters.
We pray for those that will be traveling, for Stephen and Annie as they go home, you give them safety, for Dan as he goes to Houston this week, for Joy, Toby, and Jack. We ask that you would bring each one of them back to us safely. And remember our dear sister Alicia. May she have a sense of your presence there in the convalescent home. We ask that you would give her peace. And now as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please? Sing the doxology together.